Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode of, um, well, I say it's an incredible show because I, I get incredible people from around the world speaking to me and taking time out. And today we're flying all the way over to uh, Surrey uh, in British Columbia, Canada. And we're talking to one of the first, uh, the one of the first guests that we ever had on the uh, podcast and on the show, uh, and it is uh, Jennifer Island. Jennifer is the deputy chief constable of the Surrey, P- uh, Surrey Police Service <laughs> over in British Columbia. And uh, when I spoke to you last, Jennifer, thanks very much for coming on again. By the way. Uh, but when we first spoke, and it was back in January 2022, and I think I've only just launched this show and we're about four weeks into it. So thank you so much for being one of our early speakers. But you were doing something incredible. Like uh, you joined Surrey Police Service back in 2021, and it was a brand new police service, which I just found it astonishing. Uh, so we had a we had a great conversation you were talking about you know the complexities of of creating this brand new police service uh, you were taking over from the RCMP the Royal Canadian Mountain Police that traditionally had police Surrey and you were creating this local police force and we were talking about some of the complexities in and around doing that and also the recruitment strategies that you had. And, you know, it, it was astounding, really, because I, you don't hear this from many organizations, let alone police services, where you said that your recruitment strategies were based around the values of the organization and the values of the new recruits coming into the police service. So I want to sort of just find out where you are. You know, this is like two, almost two years later. What happened? I mean, I've been following you guys on LinkedIn. I have been super impressed, by the way, with, with what I have seen and the energy that comes about. But tell me what the reality is. What's been, what's the journey been like over the last couple of years? Yeah. I, thanks for having me on again. It was great to sort of recap. Um, the first time I was on, I had been about a year in the job because I started in January 2021. So, you know, yeah, it was about a year in when we talked. Uh, so much has happened since then. <laughs> um, there's lots to unpack. So, yeah, I guess, you know, just to get into our conversation, um, you know, we had a, an election about a year ago. So in, in October of 2022, um, so the start of our journey happened when the mayor and council of the city of Surrey had decided um, back in like 2018 that they were going to modernize and move to a Surrey-centric dedicated municipal police department yeah. and cancel their contract with the federal police force. We talked about that when yes. I was first on. The election happened, that four-year council had a unanimous vote to move towards us. Four years later, we were 
partway, almost halfway through the transition. So last October in 2022, um, the new mayor and council had a 5-4 vote to uh, stop the transition and revert back to the RCMP. I so, saw something around this on LinkedIn yeah. uh, and it wasn't so overt, but I sensed there was something going on. So just talk about that journey. That yeah, must be- I mean, it's really overt in the yeah. sense that politically, um, we spent basically the last year from last October until really this October in a um, political standstill. So policing as it should be uh, very separate from politics. So this was a political conversation between the municipal government and the provincial government um, in BC. And the provincial government has the overall authority to decide what the nature, they're responsible Mm. for, for police oversight, but the community, the city is allowed to pick which policing model they want. There was nuances in the law that had never been contemplated before because no one's ever transitioned to a new police department before. So we spent the last year as an organization basically on the sideline watching the political debate happen as to whether or not the 400 employees that we had hired in the last two years were actually going to all lose their jobs and they were going to dismantle the Surrey Police Service that we had spent two years building. And so the last year has been trying, very difficult, uh, intense, um, and really we didn't have a lot of say in what was happening. We we continued to build and be positive and do what we could do. The government made the decision to stay with SPS yeah. and to continue our transition. And then my most recent post that I think probably triggered this conversation was they changed the law. They changed the law in the province to be very clear that once you start down the process of a transition and you've hired hundreds of employees and you're moving towards a new model of policing, you really do have to kind of continue on and finish that off. I can't even imagine what that must have felt like for you individually. I know that you've been spearheading a lot of this uh, yourself. You know, you were brought in, you were ex-RCMP yourself, weren't you, if I remember right? Uh, and you were brought in literally to to recruit the new uh, RC, uh, the, the new Surrey Police Service. And I think at the time you were saying, you know, you wanted to recruit over 800 officers uh, and that was the target, but you wanted to recruit them in your own way. So having put all, all that effort in, how did that impact on you as a leader? You know, this level of insecurity, uncertainty, because I've lived through this myself. You know, I remember when I first joined the police service back here in the UK, like 40 years ago. And I remember my police force and we have the county system here. So we had a county police force uh, in Derbyshire and we had like a county council, which was very left wing. We had a national government, which was quite right wing leaning. And there was this conflict between the two and the police service became the tennis ball. Uh, and we suffered as a consequence. But like you say, you can't really do much or say much. You sit on the sidelines with this level of uncertainty. What was that like for you as a leader? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. Um, and I, I think that like I have actually experienced and grown so much as a leader. I know a lot more about myself and my people in the last year. I would, I would say this, it was, it was a heartbreaking sleepless nights Mm. for almost a year. And it was never that I didn't believe 
that the SPS was here to stay and that we were going to be the organization of choice. But I had spent two years and recruited, you know, 350 police officers and was part of recruiting about 60 civilian stuff. So we had like 400 employees mm. and we have about 20 people working here, 20 couples. So 40 human beings in SPS where their entire income was tied up in this organization. People who'd moved across the country from like Toronto, which is the far east of Canada, and picked up and moved their entire families. Wow. So we had 20 people and these people were not like old in policing where they were double dipping and can retire. They had kids in elementary school, young families, mortgages. And so when this happened over the last year, the emotional and the pressure impact was that I have convinced and recruited people to come on this journey and they trusted me. They trusted us as an organization. Yeah. They believed us when we said we were here to stay and we will care for you. And the idea that external groups could collapse that and these people would all lose their jobs and their livelihoods um, was an experience I never thought I was going to have to have. And it mm -hmm. was, it's actually, it's altered. It's it's been altering for a lot of us, um, and we've had to learn how to cycle through it. It's almost traumatizing to have gone through it, and I don't I don't minimize trauma because I I've seen and been through placing trauma. But of course, this experience of ruin, like of of that emotional impact of family and security and life and being part of convincing people to come uh, was a significant experience. There there was a real. The level of relief that we had when the government made the decision, I, I just can't overstate what that felt like for us as an organization. I'm just trying to put myself into your shoes. Uh, and I've been in the leadership positions myself, of course. Uh, you know, when you are leading a, a, a large group of people, I remember I had a department that was 400 strong and, uh, and we were going through a significant change, but lots and lots of uncertainty. And everybody's looking towards you as the leader, aren't they? Expecting you to at least provide a bit of stability, if not know all the answers. And of course, you as a human being, uh, it can be a very lonely place, leadership, can't it? You don't know what's going on and the, the fate is not in your hands. So you said you learned a lot about yourself as a leader. Just talk through, because there'll be people listening to this podcast or, or, or this program uh, and they'll be wondering, well, what what must it be like and what could I practice to, to look after my own mental health so, so I can be the best leader that I can be? What were the things that you learned about yourself as a leader and how did you, how, how have they changed and shaped who you are? We have a little bit of distance from it now. I mean, I'd probably have a, a more articulate answer, you know, five years from now when I have some space from it. Um, but I would say this, initially when it started, when, when the election happened, it was almost like an immediate crisis. We felt like, okay, we need to have a way to come together to, to sort of be together in the trauma. The last thing you want anyone to feel like is that they were alone. And I didn't want to be alone. I, I recognize as a human being, we're not meant to go through things like this by ourselves. And so we did immediate levels of debrief. So what happened was we were sent out as there's, I have two DC partners, Todd Matsumoto and Mike Lesage are my other partners as deputy chiefs. Mm -hmm. And immediately we were told, go out and meet with your teams and settle everybody down, give as much information and just cancel your calendars for the week and be available. And what happened that first week was we all, I had teams on different schedules and in different buildings. So I started having my debriefs and, um, 
making sure that I was making myself available. And what happened on about the third or fourth day was I had gotten through everybody, um, but there was a handful of people that were off. So I had said to my executive assistant, can you plan every week an hour where anybody who got missed can come at from, from noon to one and I'll make myself available and I'll give an update and anybody can ask questions. And so what, what stemmed from that was every week, for the next five, six months, for a one hour period, once a week, there was a debrief in person. Yeah. Um, I would go out and buy food or treats out of my own money, like because it was just important to me. It wasn't organizational money and say, come and if nothing else, be in the room, be present, have something to eat. And I always started off with, here's the information that we have. And initially it was, important updates. But then all of a sudden I started being like, there's not really an update because it's political. Right. Mm. And so I was like, maybe I should cancel them. And everyone's like, no, just come together and be together. So the meetings just started to be a little bit about that. The start of them, I would share, you know, I'm not feeling great this week and this has been a tough week. And here's some of the things I've done. And does anyone else have anything they want to share? And they became times where our organization got to know each other and that. really see each other. And there were tears in the meetings and people who didn't normally talk would talk and people who didn't normally share would share. And it was like, that. it was like altered us in the middle of trauma became this just sharing and being okay, being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It like stretched us as an organization that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't gone through it. So it's really weird. It's such a tough time, but like it was almost like a like a blessing yeah. in disguise because it coalesced you, it brought you and gelled you all together. And I, you know, this is quite it's it's quite uncommon to hear this in in a in a policing context. You know, this this level of raw vulnerability that you've shared with each other as human beings, you know, it's a very human centric kind of approach, uh, which I, I can't relate to because I haven't seen that so much in policing, you know, in my time, uh, as much as I'd love to have done. But there are times when I think there's this almost a machoistic approach in policing, even though we try to soften it now around the edges. I think at the core, it's still this strong culture uh, uh, that, that exists in policing. What has been your, um, what would you take away from that? Has it worked to the benefit of the organization, this human-centered approach? Has it has it bettered the organization or has it worsened the organization? Has it weakened the organization? In what, what, What's your take from this? I mean, you've had a like, couple of years of this kind of style of leadership. Is it good or is it bad? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. I would, I would say that um, it has allowed us to listen and hear what mm. people need. And so... For example, uh, we have a psychologist who's on contract with us. And um, I talked about my, my comms uh, uh, leader, Lisa yeah. Eason, who is with me through everything. And one of the things that we I was getting from that group was um, a, too much raw, raw, raw for the team when it's not going well. They need to know that you hear and see that not everything needs to be a celebration. Mm. And they, they started not liking the word resilient. They're like, we know resilience. We've been at this for years. Stop telling us to be resilient. And so some of what we did was like, hey, it's okay to like not feel great every day. And, it's okay and not to be okay. It's okay. And, and one of the things that 
the psychologist and my comms manager said was they might need to hear you say a bit of that and like to yourself, meaning like, you know, I maybe I'm not, I don't have the best week every week, but this is what I do to overcome it. And my door is always open. And so when you ask the question, did it make us stronger? Has it made us stronger? You know, vulnerability is really hard and awkward and I don't like doing it either. I am a student of Brené Brown. I, I, I love her philosophy and Simon Sinek and both of them preach that in order to get through these difficult times in, in leadership, you need to be able to show you're vulnerable. And I have done that this year on more occasions in a way that made me feel uncomfortable, but has actually taken probably difficult relationships with people that I had a harder time with and has resulted in me being vulnerable and taking the risk to put myself out there with somebody I didn't have a strong relationship with has been a game changer for me as a leader. And, and it's like, recognizing that diamonds are formed under pressure and that your body is stronger when you work out and you tear the muscles like difficult experiences grow you and and i'm learning that that if i put myself out there and i do have the hard conversations expose my feelings which i don't like to do it just is a game changer for the relationships in the organization. And so for me, there's absolutely no doubt that it's made us, it's, it's made people not be fearful in the organization to talk about how they're feeling. And that allows us to address the stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, this yeah. is what I sort of wanted to get to, but I just have to pick up on uh, Brené Brown and uh, Simon Sinek. It's no wonder that I was drawn to you because, you know, they're like two of my favorites anyway. Uh, but you've demonstrated that the, the philosophy that people like Brené Brown and Simon Sinek espouse, it is workable. It, 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 this is not fancy talk. This this. this uh, uh, you know, written down in their books to make their millions, this actually works when it's applied in the right kind of way. Uh, and, and, I, and I applaud you for doing that because you've demonstrated that it can also be applied in a policing context and the vulnerability, as much as it's really uncomfortable for us, it's really, really powerful and can uh, demonstrate some real worth. Uh, and the other thing I think I pick, pick up from that is that we're actually really forged as leaders, not when the sea is calm, but when the waters get choppy and the storms come in. That's when we'd really show ourselves for the leaders that we are. That's when we're really forged as leaders, uh, you know, going almost like a, the anvil that goes through the blacksmith shop. Uh, you have to go through that tension to come out as a product at the end of it all. So, I think you, you know, when you opened up by saying it's, it's shaped you and probably in five years time, you'll be able to reflect and probably give us a, a deeper answer. I think your answers have been fairly deep, to be honest. Maybe we'll call you back in five years time. I want to touch upon something else, uh, uh, Jennifer. Uh, and, and that is when we first had our conversation, like nearly two years ago, one of the things that you said to me, and it really did strike me, you said, I want to, uh, as part of our recruitment strategy, I really want to test people's values. Uh, more than anything else, values for me are really important. Now that was like music to my ears because I very I work with a lot of organizations now and I help with the recruitment processes. And I always say, uh, let's try and test the values of the, the individual. IQ takes you so far, technical skills will take you so far, but if you want real success, you have to understand what kind of an individual you're bringing into your organization and do they align with your values. So talk to me about 
how that has worked out for you, uh, putting values at the heart of your recruitment process? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if there was like a, a you know, a, a magic bullet or a genie in a bottle that allowed you to like look into a crystal ball to know, you know, what you're looking at um, with people. But, you know, I would say that we took the time to actually ask ourselves, what were some of the things that you would like to know about somebody? And they tended not to be the traditional things that you would necessarily mm. ask in a in a policing interview. Don't get me wrong, we still have to ask and screen for, you know, physical ability and the ability to um, know how to respond under pressure and, and how have you dealt with difficult times in your life. And so we ask all those questions as well. But what's interesting is that you know, we do poke into times in people's lives when they've had a an opportunity to make a decision one way or the other. And we try to ask questions about when you when you've been morally or ethically challenged and you could have gotten away with somebody no or something, knowing that nobody would know, nobody was looking, no one would ever know that you did it. So oh, what does wow. your decision making look like when only you know what you've done. And we ask questions like that and delve into the stories. Um, and it's allowed us to actually, we've vetted some people out based on not feeling like either they've matured enough to be thinking like that mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. really recognizing that we actually have hit on something where we actually don't think your values line up with us. Because, you know, there's a lot of people that will get into policing where they, you know, they turn on the TV and they'll look at a, a policing show or a commercial and it's tactical and it's chasing someone down and throwing on the arrest and deploying the dog or being in the tactical unit. And those are all uh, important parts of the, of the job that we do. But the, the massive amount of the job that we do that's most important is our ability to inter interact, be compassionate to people that are in the worst moments of their lives. Mm. And how do you navigate that? And do you have the understanding that you're dealing with a human being? And how do you safely get them where they need to be and make sure that you're safe with your team getting home? And so a lot of that is de-escalation and interaction and understanding human beings and being able to be calm enough to know what to do when you need to do it. And so we interview based on trying to sort out if we think you have the skills to do that. I remember, um, just sharing a story like 40 years ago. And these are words that still stick with me and it very much resonates with what you're talking about right now. And I remember coming straight out of my 15 weeks in, in police training in this national police training center. And I got posted to my first police station and it was in a, a very strong mining community and it had a very strong dialect. I'm not going to give you the dialect because you may not understand the accent, uh, but uh, I got posted with a, a tutor constable and this guy had been around like 25 years he was grizzled he was you know he'd, he'd, he'd stayed in the same place for 25 years and his opening words to me were and there I was you know nine stone wet through skinny face kid full of enthusiasm and everything else and he said to me he says calm down he says you've been through training school so we know you're good enough he says but if you want to be great he says you have to forget some of that and use this up here and you have to learn how to talk to people and that's been like the best advice somebody has ever given to me. And this, this ability to interact with people as you're talking it, uh, talking it through, I think is like one of the most powerful skill sets that we can have as human beings, this ability to build relationships. And it, it centers right into emotional intelligence. So it's so heartening to hear you say that. And, and, you know, if there are any 
UK police officers uh, of senior rank who have some level of influence. These are lessons that are applicable here in the UK or anywhere else in the world, in the policing world. Uh, so you've proved that it can be done. Tell me about um, the... So you've you, you've recruited people based on values. Of course, you have to test the technical skills and all the other comp, uh, comp, uh, comp, uh, sort of competencies. But talk to me about uh, whether you've had any, whether that decision has been proven to be a mistake for you at any one point. Like, has anyone really let you down? You know, I wouldn't say that anybody has really let us down as far as their, you know, their values or ethics. Um they're human beings and there's like, so really good people who have great values and ethics can have difficult days and tough mm. times and make bad decisions. That doesn't mean that they're bad people. And so we know who we've hired in their core and what they're about as human beings. I think as an organization, what's a game changer for us when we hire with values and ethics is that when people have a bad day and they've, they've gotten into trouble or something's gone wrong, we do not turn our back on them as an organization because we know who you are and we believe in you. We, mm. we, we know what you've told us about you and we've gotten to know you. And so one of the things that I've watched other organizations do is the second something goes wrong, it's this kick to the curb mentality, like you're no longer part of us and we just want to get rid of you. Our organization works very, very hard to wrap around support and get people back to where we know they need to be. We want you to be healthy, well, engaged, and we don't want to see you feel and be like that, right? Yes. And so it's not that people don't make mistakes. It's not that I don't come to work and sometimes be like, oh, I'm really disappointed you chose to do that. Mm. But my job is to say to you, I care about you and I want you to be better. So let's work on getting you back to center. And our organization, because we hired with that mentality, we continue to do that once they're here. And I think that for us, it's not a one-stop shop. You pass through the test and now we just disregarded it the rest of our organization. We really rely on it the entire time. And I think people are sometimes surprised they get the support from us when something goes wrong. That's the game changer for our organization. That's what sets us apart. So Jennifer, I just want to uh, touch on a couple of last points with you. Firstly, I, I love this approach that you have that that breaks away from this concept of a blame culture uh, and and people being pushed to the sidewalk so very easily when they do make a mistake rather than, as you described, a wraparound to understand what went on. And, you know, the part of being human-centric is also understanding that human, human, human beings are very complex. Uh, we can have good and bad days. Uh, we can make mistakes. Uh, and it reminds me of a book, and I don't know if you've uh, read this book. It's called Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed. And I know that you like your books, but uh, I encourage you to read this book because it very often, it, it very much talks to what you're, what you're, what you're talking about right now. So Matthew Syed was, I think he used to be a, a professional tennis, table tennis player for the UK at one point. Uh, but his wife went in for a routine operation and ended up dying uh, on the operating table. And, and he had this whole, uh, sort of uh, process where the hospital refused to admit its mistake. Uh, there were people in the operating room who were at a junior level who wouldn't intervene when they could see what was going on and, 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 and felt, felt fearful of intervening to, to the more senior person in the room, i.e. the surgeon. And he often talks about, hey, you know, most organizations are like this. They, ref they don't want to admit mistakes. Uh, they do, they want to apportion blame, 
But actually, if you look at the airline industry, the first thing the airline industry does is how do we prevent this mistake from happening again whatever we do the investigation? So the first thing they look for is the black box. I, I think it's a fascinating book, but actually in, in what you've just described, I think you've pretty much covered what that book is all about. And I just find it so refreshing that this is coming from a police service, a police force, uh, a policing organization, because I, I haven't never come across a policing organization that not only just talks about this, but actually practices it so vehemently as you do. And you know, from what I'm picking up is that uh, as a consequence of being vulnerable, as a consequence of being human centric, as a consequence of understanding that people make mistakes, testing people on their values as part of your recruitment process, you still believe that this is the right, the, the right position that you took because you've not been disproved in any way, shape or form. Has it? I mean, you've been in policing a, a long time. <laughs> Sorry, it's not your first, uh, first sort of uh, rodeo, as they say. In terms of performance, do you believe that it brings about good performance for you or do you think performance could be better? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, <clears throat> I want to be in an organization where I can make mistakes mm. and I do make mistakes and um, being able to apologize and meet with people and say, I'm really sorry that that's the experience that you had. It was never my intention. My values and my intention are always to do what's right and good for people and the organization. Mm. But as leaders, we make mistakes. And I think that when we're willing to be that way, it allows the freedom for other people to not be fearful of their mistakes. And so when you ask about whether or not it elevates your organization, when we're building and no one's done this before, mm -hmm. and there is no playbook for anyone to look after, to look at, our people need to know that they're supported if something goes wrong because they don't have anything to rely on. And if we made them fearful of mistakes and we weren't encouraging of helping support them through when something goes wrong, then the people working here would not be creative. They would sit within very tight parameters. They'd be afraid to come to work because mm. how are we supposed to give them examples of how to do stuff that's never been done by anybody before? And so to do this, you have to be caring, you have to be forgiving, you have to be comforting, and then the people will do amazing work for you. You know, I would say right now, I'm like, probably about a foot away from the elephant. So it's gray and it's wrinkly and it looks a certain way because I've been at this for three years. It's hard. My perspective is very difficult. Um, but when I step back and I'm and I'm out of it, when I retire and I'm gone from this experience and, and you know, I'm not saying that I, I don't know when that will be. I want to see this through. But I think there'll be a perspective that allows me to see the whole elephant. And it'll be at that point in time where I'll be like, wow, these were some really amazing things that turned out to be true. I can say right now I wouldn't be doing it any other way than we are. And if we had done it traditional policing way, I'm actually not sure we would be where we are right now. I actually think what saved us is this approach that we've had. Well, can I say from my perspective, I have the ability to stand back and see what's going on, even though it's from thousands of miles away. Um, and I can tell you everything that I see, I'm truly impressed by. And uh, I want to thank you for throwing out that playbook. I want you to I want to thank you for having the leadership courage, you and your colleagues, for having that courage to 
create something that's fresh, create something that's, that's real, and create something that's really connected to human beings, both inside your organization and for the communities that you serve. Jennifer, I knew this was going to be, going to be a great conversation. Uh, I wish you all the very best. I'm coming to Canada in 2025 for a wedding. So I'm coming to Surrey. So I definitely want to come and meet up with you. I, I want to see what Surrey Peace, uh, Police Service is all about uh, because I think you're doing an incredible job. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.